From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Last week, a lawsuit filed in federal court charged the state of Georgia with violating the Civil Rights Act. The suit was filed on behalf of Kenneth Caban Gonzalez, who relocated from Puerto Rico to southeast Georgia in 2017. Gonzalez says that his documents were seized when he applied for a license at the Georgia Department of Driver Services, and then that an inspector there made him answer questions not asked of residents from other states. The governor of Puerto Rico asked Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to look into the complaint, and Kemp this weekend called for an investigation of similar claims of discrimination against Georgia's DDS. Jorge Vasquez from the Latino Justice Agency represents Gonzalez, who is listed in the lawsuit. He joins me now on the line from New York. Hello, Jorge. Hello, Ms. Prescott. Thank you for having me here. Pleasure to be on the show with you. Well, glad to have you with us. We did a brief little recount there of what Kenneth Caban Gonzalez says happened when he went to DDS to get his license. Why did they say they were taking his documents? Interestingly enough, they haven't responded back as to why. They, he's never received an answer as to why they, they took his documents or why they're keeping his documents. And what did they take? At that point, his documents included his Puerto Rico driver's license, his birth certificate, and his Social Security card. So he goes to DDS, he provides them with documents, lets them know that he's from Puerto Rico, and is told because he's from Puerto Rico that they need to take another step with him. And this step is an investigation. A few weeks later, he's then contacted and told, hey, we're ready for the investigation. Come in to meet with someone from our office. He later comes into DDS. When he goes to DDS, he meets with an investigator. When he meets with the investigator, the investigator asks, are you from Puerto Rico? Mr. Caban Gonzalez answers in the affirmative, yes. Afterwards, he's told that he's going to be given an exam. And the exam was to see if he's, I guess, from Puerto Rico or to to question the legitimacy that Mr. Caban Gonzalez is, is actually from Puerto Rico. So what kind of test so determines that? So he was asked an array of questions. Uh, some of the questions included uh, who's the biggest employer in Puerto Rico. It included uh, what festival is celebrated on another part of the island that, that he's not from. Uh, if for people listening in Georgia, it would be the equivalent the equivalent of asking someone from, let's say, Savannah about festivals or things that happen in Norcross or asking them about specific things that happen in Atlanta. Uh, he was asked about a baseball stadium. He was asked uh, even trick questions, right? Do Puerto Ricans vote for for the president? Well, for those listening, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico while it's a commonwealth, doesn't vote in the general presidential election, but certainly participates in the presidential primaries, mm-hmm. right? So answering something like that the wrong way might have triggered whatever's, whatever happened to, to Mr. Caban Gonzalez. And did the DDS respond to questions of, what one, charges of discrimination, and two, why these questions were asked? No, DDS has not responded to us, has not responded yet to the lawsuit and has not responded to Mr. Caban Gonzalez. In fact, Mr. Caban Gonzalez was never told whether he passed or failed the exam, but given what happened to him after he was asked those questions, the presumption is that DDS did not like his answers. Okay, so he did not get a license. 
Correct. He was never given and a license. And his documents have been uh, in their custody for over 600 days now. All right, they haven't been returned. Now, according to the 2017 census, more than 93,000 Puerto Ricans live in Georgia. Have you heard complaints from other Puerto Rican applicants similar to this? Yes, we've heard complaints, and I personally have heard several complaints from numerous individuals uh, ranging in, in different ages. All right. So that is Jorge Vasquez from the Latino Justice Agency. Also joining us from Georgia State University is political science professor Amy Steigerwald. Nice to have you with us again. Great. Thank you for having me. All right. So you listening to this, uh, there was a response. They hadn't received the lawsuit yet, they say DDS, but somebody did go on the record of saying that the state complies with state and federal law in issuing licenses. Anything you hear here that sounds like it would run a, run across a state or federal law? Well, the biggest thing seems to be the issuance of a test that is about knowledge, not of driving, but of Puerto Rico, which appears to be, um, I guess, to suss out whether or not the person is really from Puerto Rico, suggesting that perhaps they believe that people have managed to gain documents that are fraudulent and they're actually from other countries. And so they're trying to portray themselves. Otherwise, it's a little unclear what the purpose of that test would be, especially because there is no similar uh, test that is given that is not connected to the skill of driving or knowledge of road laws that is given to anyone else who goes in for a license. So if somebody goes in from any other state, are there laws of reciprocity governing governing U.S. territories and like Puerto Rico, uh, as there are with other states and the District of Columbia, for example? There are. So almost all the states and territories have these laws of reciprocity that they recognize uh, licenses that people have gotten over there. What they do sometimes differ on a little bit is how how exactly they are treated and what that reciprocity means. In the state of Georgia, anyone who comes in with a license from another state or the District of Columbia and it hasn't expired can, for all intents and purposes, sort of put in their documents, give, hand over that license and get a Georgia license. Um, Georgia law does make a distinction um, though in its regulations of how it treats those coming from U.S. territories, um, excluding the District of Columbia, and they have to, they can turn in the license, they give the same documents, but they also have to take the knowledge and driving tests that anyone who would be getting a newt like that for the first time getting a license would have to do. The knowledge and driving test. So that's, you know, exactly. like a written test or, you know, check the boxes test and a driving test, physical driving test. Exactly. Do other states have these kind of requirements or particular requirements for Puerto Ricans or people from Guam or other U.S. territories? There do seem to be some states that also, again, treat the territory slightly differently, such as, for example, as saying that they, unlike those coming from um, mainland states, have to take, uh, for example, the driving test or something like that. But most of the states appear to treat um, anyone who has a U.S.-issued driver's license, whether that's from a territory or uh, from one of the, the 50 states or the District of Columbia, the same way. So uh, do we have a sense of when these requirements started or this idea of taking an oral test started or trying to obtain a sense of one's knowledge of the place that one claims to be coming from? 
That we don't have any idea of. The The document that was released um, as part of the discovery and through um, a FOIA request, which is the uh, Freedom of Information request, is a DDS, but we should note that it's not DDS of the Department of Driver Services, which is who issues through the state of Georgia driver's licenses. Instead, the, the front page says it's DDS, which is the Diplomatic Security Service, and it lists, it says it's a Puerto Rican interview guide, and it says in it that part of the guide is you, that the purpose of the questions are to help determine whether or not the person really does come from the uh, island of Puerto Rico, that if they know the, that they should, in fact, if they come from there, know, be able to answer most of these questions. And the document states that even though it doesn't, if someone doesn't know it, it doesn't prove fraud. On the other hand, one should know the answers to these things. And what is sort of unclear is where this document came from, um, why it was a part of the discovery that was brought up for uh, documents that were asked for from the Georgia Department of Driver Services, because that is where it came from, um, and what they're being used for, um, and where this um, comes in to be and how it's being used. So Jorge, for you, um, putting together this case, what's your tack here? Is it that test, the oral trivia test <laughs> from the sounds of it, um, that is the point of contention here for unfair treatment? There is a few points. Certainly is the fact that they're treating him different than anyone else. It's also attacking just the general process. The fact that you could hold one's documents and not give them any process to get it back, not to contact them, not to return any cause, to essentially leave a fellow U.S. citizen out in a new state with no formal ID, no birth certificate, no Social Security card. How can you do simple things like apply for a bank account uh, if you needed to get a new apartment, uh, if you needed to travel from one place to another? So, so certainly part of it is, is that is this exam, but also the process in which DDS conducted uh, its decision or, or lack thereof with Mr. Caban Gonzalez. So this wasn't just one inspector. It was actually an inspector at the at DDS from the description that I've read of the lawsuit. Not necessarily just one arbitrary person, but other people are subjected to the same kind of rigor. That's correct. All right. So Jorge just said, like other citizens of the United States, I guess maybe that's not clear to a lot of people. Are Puerto Ricans citizens also citizens of the United States? Citizens of the United States are include all of those who are, live in the American territories as well. So if you're a citizen of a state or you're a citizen of one of the territories, you are also a United States citizen. Um we do know that there is confusion about that. There are quite a lot of Americans who have no idea that Puerto Rico is part of the United States, that the U.S. Virgin Islands are part of the United States, that American Samoa is part of the United States. And that can a lot of times cause confusion and cause uh potentially cause uh, differences in treatment in ways in which they should be treated uh, similarly to other U.S. citizens, but are not always. So, Jorge, what are you ultimately seeking from this lawsuit? We're seeking to have a better understanding of how 
the Department of Driver Services conducts uh, its inquiries for U.S. citizens from Puerto Rico, and there are so many different things that are left to question as far as what we're exactly seeking would determine would be determined later on, but certainly to change its policy to give an exam of of this of this nature is is at best uh, offensive, and then also to to reevaluate how they're treating fellow U.S. citizens with regards to not contacting them back, not giving them a formal process to get their documents back in. Jorge Vasquez from Latino Justice. He is representing Kenneth Caban Gonzalez and others in a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit against the state of Georgia. Attorney Jorge Vasquez, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Also, thank you so much, Amy, for explaining for us. My pleasure. Amy Steigerwald, she is a political science professor at Georgia State University. We'll post the full lawsuit on our website, gbbnews.org. Yesterday, we spoke with Nick Defley, director of Savannah's Office of Sustainability, about that city adding two electric cars to its fleet. In our Facebook group, Rosemary Woodle said, I hope to keep my Toyota Corolla till I can't drive anymore. Allison Smith-Harris is looking to make her next car electric, writing, I like the idea of not having to worry about gas and oil changes. It's also a plus that charging stations are becoming more widespread. Suzanne Marlowe added, I want one in the worst way. I'm looking at a Tesla 3. While listener Aaron Cohen is not a fan, he tweeted this in response, Electric vehicle parking spots are the new Lexus lane. Well, we would love to hear from you. Are you hankering for an electric vehicle? Do you think they deserve premium parking? Are they a new status symbol? Weigh in on GBB's On Second Thought Facebook group or tweet us at OST Talk, and we might feature your comments on the show. Coming up, something all of us can agree upon, pie. A pair of scientists want to move beyond the old fruit and cream holiday pie paradigm. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Is there any dessert as transporting or quite as delicious as pie? From summer blueberry to Thanksgiving pumpkin, pies are carriers of memory and tradition. A pair of CDC doctors encourages you to escape the flaky crust rut of baking the same old pies. Paul Arguin and Chris Taylor met in 2009 and bonded over baking. Since entering their first pie competition on a whim in 2011, they've taken home hundreds of awards, including the 2017 National Pie Championship for Checkerboard Peanut Pie. They've also made a home together as a married couple, and their latest collaboration is a cookbook, The New Pie, featuring 75 pies and modern techniques to shake up the classic American dessert. And Paul and Chris are joining me now in the studio. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. The part of the story here is not just the pies, but your story, which is fascinating. How'd you two meet? Uh, so actually, we had a friend in common. I was uh, finishing up my PhD work at the University of Pittsburgh, and Paul was already living down in Atlanta, and a friend of mine left after she graduated and took a job at CDC and worked with a friend of Paul's. And she had met him, I think, at parties a couple times and said, oh, I have a friend back in Pittsburgh who I think you'd really like. Um, you have, I think, similar senses of humor. And, and she told me the same thing, and I think Paul and I both thought, Sure. Yeah, naturally. I rolled my eyes saying, yeah, I'm sure you have a friend. Yes. But as it turned out, we started chatting and uh, and she was right. Uh, we had an awful lot in common. Including baking? 
Yes, that was that was one of the first things we started talking about. So uh, we had we both had fairly extensive cookbook collections, and uh, we we talked about uh, you know what we had, what we liked to do, and that's when I had the idea. Well, we're still living so far apart, but why don't we bake something together? Yeah, via telephone. That's kind of adorable. Thank you. (laughs) What did you you decide to bake? Well, so that was, I blame Chris for this. So I was visualizing in my head, oh, brownies, uh, pound cake, you know, something simple. And I just threw it to him and said, you pick. And? And I said, well, there's something, because we had one cookbook in common, which was the Cake Bible by Rose Levy Berenbaum. And I'd always wanted to make the Scarlet Empress. All right, that just sounds complicated. <laughs> so it's yes. sort of a baroque style uh, Charlotte bomb dessert. So it's <laughs> you make a jelly roll filled with raspberry preserves. You cut the jelly roll into slices. You line a bowl with those slices, and you fill that with a Bavarian cream. And then you let it set and flip it all upside down, and take it off, and you have this beautiful, almost brainy-looking bomb dessert that you cut into wedges and wow all your friends with cover with raspberry swirls chris were you trying to put him through the paces or just keep him on the phone longer (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i i hadn't actually thought of it at the time i was just thinking this is always something i've really wanted to make let's go ahead and make it um and it just so happened it it turns out to be a really good relationship primer you know (laughs) it's like you can get someone on the phone for hours at a time and if they don't hang up on you and disgust. It's probably a good start. <laughs> so you were punching up from the beginning. <laughs> but your first pie competition was Pie Squared. And this is after you got together. You moved to Atlanta? Correct. Okay. That's Chris, by the way. Um, and you you did this pie competition, Pie Squared in Dahlonega back in 2011. What was that like? Why did you even decide to do it? Uh, you know, early in the relationship, you're always looking for interesting and fun things to do on the weekend. And I'm not sure where he found it, but uh, maybe some um, website or but you know, newspaper found this pie contest and said, is that something you think you'd, you'd like to try? And so I said, yeah, that sounds like a great weekend activity. And Chris took home the award. Yeah, blue well, ribbon. What'd you get? What'd you, what'd you make, rather? Um, it was the summer strawberry pie that's actually featured in the book. And a beautiful pie it is, by the way. There are many beautiful pies in this book. You both have competed in hundreds of contests since then with a combined 614 wins. That's at least time of printing. Has that gone that's, up? No, no, that's that's still correct. You're holding fast. <laughs> <laughs> that's still very impressive. So what is the atmosphere like at these events? Is it, you know, cutthroat or more akin to the genteel episode of the Great British Bake Off? Yeah, it's very collegial, um, especially at the the National Pie Championship. I think that's the contest we interact most with other competitors. Um, and it's really great. Uh, I know some of our fellow competitors sort of refer to it as pie camp. You come back every year and you get to see all your friends and everyone competes against each other. But, you know, even if you don't win, you get to see your friend win, which is always a great experience anyway. Well, you rate degrees of difficulty in the new pie, in the book, yes. the ingredients, the equipment, the construction of the pie itself. What are, what are some of the easiest, like for beginners, for, or the pie-phobic? Um, I'd say probably one of the easiest ones is the um, uh, 6151 Richmond, uh, which is... Uh, uh, th- that's uh, really a, a Chris-inspired pie. Yes, Go ahead. it's inspired by the Golden Girls, which is a favorite show of mine. <laughs> so it's a it, we have each ingredient sort of in- inspired by one of the characters in the show. So it's a pecan graham cracker crust. So it's a simple crust to make and has pecans in it, um, an ode to Blanche Devereaux, the Southern Belle. And then it's uh, a limoncello cheesecake, so limoncello and Italian lemon liqueur. Um, for Sophia and Dorothy, and then it's topped with the lingonberry preserves um, for a 
Scandinavian Woman of the Year, um, <laughs> St. Olaf Woman of the Year, Rose Nyland. It all comes together in a no-bake cheesecake, which is, you know, what they always sat around and enjoyed together. It is absolutely a beautiful pie. And you have a number of other boozy pies in here. This is this is a pie for grown-ups in one chapter, anyway. Correct. Yeah, one of the chapters is, is solely uh, dedicated to um, pies inspired by cocktails. Um, so, yeah, we have uh, 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 mango colada. We have um, actually a really fun one that's in there is the um, it's called the Nicolet. Um, it's a uh, uh, based on a, a boozy cappuccino drink uh, at an Italian restaurant that um, uh, it's actually in my home in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. Um, and so it's a combination of multiple liqueurs in this creamy um, chocolate and, and coffee base. Um, I, I think it's fantastic. So it's and it's also that one's actually fairly easy to make. Okay, so that's the thing about these pies. They, there's such a variety here that goes beyond, I don't know, pies on an almost, what, grandmother, folksy tradition? So what yeah. does new pie mean to you? So we really want to, you know, still respect the tradition of the pie, which carries a lot of memory, um, you know, with families. But we really wanted to, to say pie doesn't always have to be what you thought it was. It's not always just cherry and blueberry and vanilla cream. You know, you can do so much with pie. It's such a, almost an infinite um, dessert. And so we really wanted to, to showcase that, um, but also in a way that we sort of updated it a little because a lot of times with pie techniques, um, you know, recipes can be very rustic or homey in their instruction, especially um, with something like pie crust, where it's sort of like a lot of recipes will say, you know, you'll know it when you see it, hmm. putting it together. We really wanted to take a scientific approach as scientists, and so we really advocate for, you know, weighing your ingredients using a digital scale, you know, to know that if you have a, a formula and a proportion, that it's something that's more reliable um, than maybe what other people have experienced before, especially if they've had uh, you know, experienced a lot of frustration making pie crust. But that's funny because, you know, they say cooking is an art, baking is a science. So you two are both scientists, right? Or are you used to the scientific method? That's right. Does that give you an edge? I think it does. And in fact, I th we tried to put that into the, into the book. Uh, we strongly advocate weighing ingredients um, because that's one of the issues that people will face. They'll, they'll say, you know, well, my grandmother used to put a handful of this, a scoop of that, and, and that may be how they learn. In fact, we were talking with someone recently who said, I always, when I make a pie, throw in some fruits, handful of sugar, and, and why do I even need a cookbook at all? And the fact is, sometimes he might be spot on and come up with a pie. More often than not, he'll have a runny mess or something that's thick and gluey, too sweet. Um, so if you could actually measure you're more likely to have a success time after time. I'm speaking with CDC scientists and pie innovators, Paul Arguin and Chris Taylor, authors of The New Pie. It's a cookbook that adds fresh and a lot of fun flavors to the traditional definition of the classic American dessert. Okay, so let's get to some hard-hitting questions here, <laughs> shall we? If you could choose one pie, sweet or savory? Oh, that's so hard. It's It's like choosing a child. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I think I've accepted this as my answer now, um, is the cheese course. So it's, Oh, right. There's a cheese course pie. Yeah. So right. we've modeled it after like what you, a cheese course you'd get after a, a fancy meal. So it's a walnut graham cracker crust, a layer of um, fig and port wine jam, and then a, a cream on top made with gorgonzola dolce blue cheese, um, which I think, you know, just 
looking at it, I think some people would think, oh, blue cheese and a dessert pie, but it works really, really well. It's not too cheesy. It's not too sweet. Um, it has that nice fruit layer, with, um, especially with the wine. It, it's really a fantastic pie. We had a, I would say we, we had, had a lot of fun surprising people when we, we served this at, the, at a dinner party. And they go, cheese, this is going to be a savory course. And they're surprised because it's, a, it's still it's a, it's a dessert pie. Are people lining up to go to your dinner parties, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, it, it took a while because as we were readying things and testing the recipes, we were bringing a lot of pies to a lot of people's houses. And I think at one point, I think people just stopped answering their doors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, other questions, lard or shortening? Uh, you can use either, really. Uh, we, we've cited in the book uh, uh, with shortening, uh, and people shouldn't be afraid of vegetable shortening. It, it's, a, it's a very good product. It has a lot of good purposes. Um, uh, both, uh, whether you use lard or shortening, they perform similarly um, in that they have uh, their, their uh, similar melting points. Um, they uh, allow you to work the dough a little bit easier. So when you're rolling out the dough, trying to fit it into your pie plate, um, it, it gives a little bit more flexibility uh, than a pure butter crust alone. Shortening is certainly going to be a lot easier for most people to find. Mm -hmm. When we say lard, we're not talking about the regular lard that you'd find on the, the shelf in your grocery store. The lard that's recommended for use in dessert pies is uh, something called leaf lard, if you're not familiar. No. There's um, a, a, a part of the pig um, that's it's the fat right around the kidneys uh, that uh, is the least piggy in flavor and so it's 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 prized for for making these pies so if you can find a butcher who renders out leaf lard for you um, it'll be almost flavorless and, and it's the per it really it does produce a wonderful pie all right how about crust by hand or food processor I would definitely say food processor that's the way I've sort of always done it um, Paul used to do by hand uh, but now I think he's converted to a food processor as well. I, I find it to be faster. You do it quick, so I know some people say, like, oh, it heats up, can heat up your dough, it can heat up the fats in your dough. But if you do it in short, quick pulses, because um, you don't want to make a ball of dough in your food processor with pie dough, that's, you'd really overwork it at that point. But I, I think food processor is really the way to go. But if you don't have a food processor, by hand is just fine. In fact, we give instructions for both in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes if, if all you're doing is one you know, disc of pie dough, it might be easier just to have a bowl in your pastry cutter and do it by hand. Um, yeah, I think why I've converted myself is we often make a ton of pie. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, I'd have you know, huge forearm muscles at this point if I was making every single batch of pie dough by hand. Is every pie better with ice cream? I think anything is better with ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Hot pie or cold pie? Obviously, cheesecake is not going to be a great hot pie. Well, I'd, I'd answer that for the fruit pies. Um, you want it um, really at room temperature. So, you know, let's say a, an apple pie, let's say fresh out of the oven, steaming hot. That's actually, it smells fantastic at that point. But that's probably a terrible time to cut it, uh, being that the thickener that you've used to sort of set up your apple pie, um, it's reached its gelling point temperature-wise, but now it needs to cool down to form that gel to hold the pie together. If you cut it at that point, it's all going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. So must let a pie rest. Absolutely. Yes. How many pies do you all make in a week? I'm curious. Right now, I'd say maybe one or two. Um, yeah. While we were doing the book, sometimes... 20? Yeah. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a ton. Yeah, we would each do four or five over the weekend. And your, your book is full of beautiful spins on the beloved pie classics. What, what goes into making a new recipe? Do you always collaborate on this, or one has the inspiration? Or 
I think it depends. Yeah, some of our, I think our, our most spectacular pies have been fi- complete 50-50s where um, I'll toss an idea his way and he'll make it blossom. He'll throw it back at me. I'll add another little spark. Um, but there, there certainly are some that are pure Chris and pure me. So when you compete, you compete with your own pies, right? Correct. And, and we've always, I guess, with, I guess for the first time ever this year, we entered the same category once. But up until that point, we were always in separate categories so that we wouldn't compete directly against each other until best of show. I mean, once you reach the best of show round, I mean, you'd love to have you know, both of us in the best of show round. That's, that's, that's ideal. Yeah. Who's, who's by won that competition? Mine did. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Paul's was, a, he had some in the contending too. So it's all first place winners of the different categories. So blue, blue ribbon winning apple, blue ribbon winning blueberry all go against each other for best of show. And so I had the blue ribbon peanut butter pie that year, which one? Oh, right. That was the checkerboard pie. Yes. That's a beautiful pie. And that's the other thing, the decorations, the look of these pies. Is one of you more adept at finishing them off or is this a skill both of you have come up with? In different ways, yeah. So Chris definitely has some um, beautiful hand piping skills. So yeah, anything really delicate and lovely, that's probably his work. Um, I, I've learned other ways of, of decorating pies. So some of the embossed crust tops uh, that you've seen, like the um, the maple blueberry. Um, right, with the swirling top pattern in the top. Uh, yeah, uh, that one's in the, um, I think that's the, um, the swirls is on the... Uh, Cranberry, I think. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful yeah. looking pie. But the wood grain pattern, that's the one that's on top of the uh, of the blueberry. <laughs> this is so fantastic. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. and But you also have, you know, pies that you would never imagine, like a beet pie, the unbeatable pie. Yes. So, so you know, how, how are you going to get people off of their idea of the old steaming pie that they get on Thanksgiving or, you know, the apple pie fresh out of the oven in the autumn? Yeah, it, it's, I think it's going to take some work because I think... Pie can take some work to put together, and I think, unfortunately, most people only experience the joy of pie on, you know, special winter holidays. You know, definitely Thanksgiving, sometimes Christmas. Um, We've actually been surprised, um, you know, how many people made pies for Fourth of July, which was really great to see that people are turning on their ovens and turning out fantastic pies for summer holidays. So, you know, maybe it is, you know, maybe there is a pie renaissance coming. Yeah, we were tagged a lot on social media, and it was, it was just lovely to see, because you, you can recognize them, say, hey, wait a minute, and you can see, hey, that's, that's the peanut butter and jelly pie. And we always try to put out, you know, if, you have, if you're making a pie and you have a question, contact us through social media, send us a message, we'll get back to you. And where can people find your pies on social media? Uh, we're at Flour, Sugar, Butter, our three favorite ingredients, on Instagram and Facebook. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This thank you. Great. Paul Arguin and Chris Taylor. Their book, The New Pie, is available now. And we're going to let Bob Dylan take us out into the break with his song, Country Pie. Just like old saxophone Joe When he's got the whole head up on his toe Oh, me, oh, my Love that country pie Listen to the fiddler play When he's playing till the break of day From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Down, 
There is no exquisite beauty without some strangeness in the proportion. That's a line from Edgar Allan Poe, the king of the dark and eerie, the strange and surreal. It could also describe the appeal of an exhibition currently on view at the High Museum of Art called Strange Light, the photography of Clarence John Lachlan. Lachlan has been called the Edgar Allan Poe with a camera. Lachlan was a Louisiana native and Southern photographer known as the father of American surrealism, a fascinating and irascible character. He broke boundaries with photographic innovations that linked imagery to the subconscious. Who was this enigmatic Southern artist? He is truly one of the great American photographers. He had a, a wonderful sense of theater. He was kind of a 19th century character trapped in the 20th century. The exhibition is on view until November the 10th, but today we're going to get a snapshot of the life and work and vision of photographer Clarence John Lachlan. John Lawrence is director of the museum, of museum programs for the historic New Orleans collection, which holds Lachlan's archives and master prints. Joining me now from WWNO in New Orleans, John, thank you for taking the time. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. And Gregory Harris is here with me in the studio, Associate Curator of Photography for the High Museum. Hello, Gregory. Good morning. Well, I'm going to start with you, Gregory. The High began collecting Lachlan's work in 1974, made a landmark acquisition in 2015. Since then, it's been years of collecting, organizing, and researching. So what is it that distinguishes his work in Southern and American photography? Uh, Lachlan was a photographer who was very far ahead of his time in, in so many ways. He was one of the first photographers to really stage his uh, his scenes for the camera, to kind of build a story and use photography as a, a tool for uh, creating a narrative, for uh, using it as a tool for visual storytelling uh, within a single frame. Um, and that's something that's since become very popular and very common in contemporary photography. He was also someone who experimented in the darkroom very extensively, uh, com combining negatives, uh, double exposing things in the camera, uh, working with uh, the chemistry um, in unusual ways. He was not very uh, concerned about kind of a straight photograph. And so these, these were things that he was doing in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, long before a lot of other photographers uh, were doing that. And so he, he kind of... Uh, pre-visualized many of the things that would come in modern and contemporary photography and subsequent generations. And so I think he's someone who's not really been appreciated for those, for those contributions, partly because of the fact that he was a Southerner and spent almost his entire life in New Orleans. So he was away from the major art centers at the time. Uh, but he was, um, he was incredibly innovative and made major contributions that I think are just now starting to, to really be recognized. Well, let's get a little sense of his life. He was born in New Iberia, Louisiana, 1905, moved to New Orleans when he was young. John, what else do we know about his formative years? Well, Lachlan um, and his family, uh, as you said, uh, lived in New Orleans uh, from about 1910 until the rest of his life. He um, was fascinated with reading, uh, a, a hobby or a practice that he attributes to his father, uh, taking him to the library. His sister, Laura, was part of the family life. Uh, Lachlan's father dies in the 1918 flu epidemic, and so Clarence leaves, uh, leaves his schooling to help support his family after just an eighth grade education. And uh, through a, a series of jobs that made him uh, ultimately appreciate uh, the value of 
not only a literary education but a creative uh, life. He um, he becomes involved with uh, writing uh, prose poems, fiction, trying to market these to various outlets while still working as a clerk in a bank, and uh, hits upon the idea that if he perhaps accompanies these writings with photographs, they might have a wider appeal. And so in the early 1930s, uh, he takes up photography, uh, never abandons writing, but um, people who know his work know it more through the images rather than the words that accompany it. And it was really important to him to, that he be known as a collector of books. This was one of his central things. Uh, and also, he lost his dad young, as you said. Uh, his father died of the Spanish flu right around the end of World War One. So he had to drop out of school. Did he teach himself photography? He did. He um, he did not take any formal courses. By the time he had taught himself the rudiments of it, he had secured uh, a job with the U.S. Corps of Engineers as uh, as a photographer for uh, construction projects uh, that were happening in. Uh, the lower Mississippi Valley in the wake of the 1927 flood. And um, Lachlan learned, I think, as much photographic technique as he needed to to uh, express the ideas that he wanted to expect, express. And as, uh, as Gregory mentioned, this kind of uh, fueled an interest in experimentation in the darkroom and uh, kind of achieving results and then s sticking with with that until a new vision uh, necessitated a different form of experimentation. Now he's known primarily for these black and white images of decaying antebellum plantations, you know, dripping with Spanish moss. These were pretty abundant in the 20th century and wrote a book or pr published a book rather of photographs, Ghosts Along the Mississippi, this kind of spooky surrealism. Yet in, the, in this film, we saw a documentary about him. It is called The Phantasmagorical Clarence John Lachlan. Here is artist Don Dedeau talking about his aesthetic. His quest to reconcile this kind of Catholicism, his, it, it's lost and found having faith, losing faith, and trying to find it again. And all of this stuff showing up in his imagery. For a man who was an atheist, there's sure a lot of ghosts around the place. You know, there's still an afterlife somewhere in Clarence's world. So this is, this is a part of him. It's not easy to reconcile, but there is this kind of attachment to um, an old South, the decaying South. Gregory, what do you think was the draw for him there? Well, he he spent uh, most of his younger life in New Orleans, and he spent his you know he he died in New Orleans as well. Um, and I think he was just fascinated by by the historic architecture um, and by the the history of that of that place where he lived. Um, he was also drawn to the literary history of the South and wanted to find ways to incorporate that into his work. And I think he just saw all of the the layers of possibility that existed in in these places which he which he frequented. Um, and he used photography as a way to kind of strip away some of those layers and reveal um, the ghosts, such as it was, that that existed around around New Orleans and the the plantations and the French Quarter. Um, but it was you know it was a tool for him to kind of uh, get to another level of consciousness through photography or to reveal these things that were you know hidden in plain sight that couldn't be seen readily by. Uh, by the human eye alone. Hidden in plain sight. Here's another clip from that film, uh, someone describing, uh, John, you may know the voice better than I, about what it was like to walk around with Clarence John Lachlan. I remember a couple of wonderful times of walking through the quarter with Clarence, and 
he would gesture, he would constantly point out faces looking at us, and he saw them constantly. The world contacted him in ways that I simply wasn't sensitive to. John, so he was seeing something else in in the ordinary objects that other people saw. And this may have had something to do with his adding these ghostly elements, this double exposures, collage, uh, that Gregory mentioned earlier. Why do you think there was such a um, fascination there? Go ahead. Yes, well, I think Clarence was um, was willing to do whatever it took to bring the uh, visual idea to uh, to life, and what if that meant um, uh, staging uh, staging a photograph or uh, including a double exposure or a combination print in the darkroom or adding elements of collage or other handwork. This is um, uh, all. There were no rules, uh, or you could say every, every rule was meant to be broken. And part of uh, part of Clarence's mission was to help people see these things uh, in their own way, but he also guided them through the inclusion of sometimes very extensive texts to accompany the picture and, and almost lead uh, a person uh, to the brink of his own subconscious thoughts on uh, on the image and and to kind of offer a path for their own. John Lawrence there, Director of Museum Programs for the Historic New Orleans Collection. Also with me, Gregory Harris, Associate Curator of Photography for the High Museum in Atlanta. And we're talking about the Southern photographer Clarence John Lachlan, whose work is on view at the High right now. Well, that kind of experimentation may have been popular in European circles at that time, and we're talking mid-20th century. But American photographers then were much more concerned with realism, with recording the truth. Anyone, John or Gregory, have thoughts on why Laughlin diverged from that? Uh, Gregory, do you wish to address that first? Why don't you go ahead? (laughs) Okay. Um, Yes, uh, Clarence looked to Europe for his photographic cues, whether he was um, looking at the work of uh, Eugene Atje, a, a photographer of a different generation who he appreciated so much, or uh, his more contemporaries, um, Man Ray or uh, um, Eugene Berman. Clarence kind of felt that uh, American photography, as it were, w- was sort of stuck in a rut of either purely formal expression or social uh, documentary photography. Photography. He wanted a third way uh, to expose uh, things about the world through photographs, and and this is what what kind of led to uh, not even a hybrid, but a, a unique way of of looking at the world through the camera. Gregory, do you want to pick up on that? I mean, he was he began working as a photographer in the, the throes of the Great Depression. He matured during uh, World War II, and he really concluded his mature work as a photographer during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. So he was. <clears throat> His career was kind of uh, was was building and growing as the the country was in these you know various phases of massive social change, and you know a photographer like Walker Evans would respond to that by going out into the world and making pictures of of the world as it is, trying to describe what was happening in a very frank, rational way. And I think Lachlan saw that there were. And there were ways that, you know, just pointing a camera at something was not going to reveal 
the you know the real tension, the anxiety, the emotional tone alone, and so he wanted to find ways to to augment that and to talk about things that weren't uh, readily available just in the visual world uh, as it was. And so he he stumbled upon all of these other these other techniques for adding adding these layers and addressing these issues that you couldn't see necessarily. Well, let, it, it, okay, so you're leading to something that comes across in his films and also the wall text at the High Museum to me, this kind of idea that, you know, he is on one level taking photographs of antebellum mansions and their crumbling ruin, but also uh, taking photographs and making portraits of African Americans, which wasn't, you know, done uh, in certainly... Let's say, well, actually, I don't know that. <laughs> you guys know a lot more about photography in the 20th century than I do. But but making some kind of commentary, for example, championing the artist Clementine Hunter. Um, so an African-American. So in the one hand, he seems to be nostalgic for this past, but on the other, making some sort of commentary on how that life had transformed the lives of others. Is that fair? Absolutely, man. I think he was he was deeply conflicted about the history of the South and the present that he was living in, and how the the impact of slavery and the the Jim Crow laws, you know, still resonated um, during his lifetime. And I think there was a, a certain amount of him that that, like you said, had he had nostalgia for this other way of life, this kind of old South, this uh, antebellum South, and he saw that in the architecture. I mean, he, he was a he loved architecture. Was very involved in historic preservation, and so he kind of revered, you know, these uh, these old South plantations and the creative achievements that they recognized. But at the same time, um, he saw that they were symbols of of a, of a you know a ghastly and shameful uh, past and an, and an economy that had been built on the backs of people who were who were horribly exploited. And so, to balance out those pictures uh, that kind of uh, you know revered the old South, he made sure to photograph a lot of the the descendants of formerly enslaved people. And to photograph them with, you know, a degree of, you know, high degree of dignity to to show, to show their humanity, to show their dignity in a way that they they weren't often portrayed in photographs uh, at the time. Um, also, an interesting relationship with women. He was married five times, twice to the same woman. And there is a photo on display in the show at the High called "The Repulsive Bed." This is woman in this black veil, which is often a theme for him, which looks very, you know, Victorian shadow of death on some level. She's splayed on a mattress on a floor of a once grand room, now moldering, referencing the decay of the marital marital bed. So, do these in in some ways show a fraught relationship with women or in some ways idealize them, project upon them? I'm, I'm not sure um, uh, how Clarence would have, uh, would have characterized his own relationship with women. They were, uh, as, as you said, certainly a big part of his life um, uh, through five marriages, and they are... Um, Certainly important, uh, important figures, literally and um, symbolically, in in many of the photographs he makes. I, w I would uh, I would be doing uh, your listeners and Clarence a disservice if I if I went further than that because I simply don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, looking at his work altogether, John, you know, clearly very tied to the character of New Orleans, a place that couldn't afford urban renewal when other cities were plowing down the old to make way for the new. What do you think his work does to reflect or refute the concept, the canon of Southern art and the South overall? 
it's um, uh, New Orleans has has often been characterized as uh, in the South, but not of the South. And I think that uh, Clarence's uh, interpretation of the city that he called home for most of his life is reflective of that. It represents uh, a place that he found great comfort in, in spite of uh, in spite of its flaws. His uh, his sense of the city's own history is something that is inextricably linked to his photographs of it and uh it's it's one of uh as almost a, a casual uh side effect he gives us this wonderful documentary evidence of the city uh during the middle decades of the 20th century well he's a fascinating man we could talk a lot more about but that's what we have time for today john lawrence thank you so much My pleasure. Thank you. John Lawrence, Director of Museum Programs for the Historic New Orleans Collection. And Gregory Harris, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Gregory is Associate Curator of Photography for the High Museum. Again, there is a show going on, Strange Light, the photography of Clarence John Lachlan, on view at the High Museum through November the 10th. Many of those images you may have seen before in other places, but really give it a different kind of awareness seeing them up close. Our show for today is over. We, you heard music by Dead Man's Bones earlier. Now we're going to leave you with Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought tomorrow. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. I'm Virginia Prescott. Past the bridge, past the mills, past the steps.